0: A few years ago, I was able to turn a shelf full of books on occupied Paris and uh, wartime London into a series of magazine articles published in uh, some military history magazines. And I wanted to uh, read two or three of those here over the next uh, few weeks, mostly because they aren't really about... Uh, combat or uh, warfare at all. I tried to write them about cultural life or life at home uh, during the war. And in fact, the first one I'll read today which is called Cultural and Cultural Life and Collaboration in Occupied Paris. Uh, it wasn't published at all. This was the only one that never was published because it is so far from the nitty-gritty details of uh, Warfare, troop movements, generals, and all of that, which, understandably, is what a military history magazine that you sell in grocery stores wants to be involved in. So, even though this one, even though this one was never published, uh, it is uh, it was one of the favorite things, one of my favorite things that I was able to write for these magazines. And I do think, just as a preface to it, that it can teach us uh, a little bit about our own moment today where uh, all political sides seem to be unable to find a you might say decent way of dealing with people who uh, who uh, are guilty of past sins you might say so this asks the main question of this essay is what did it mean to collaborate in Nazi-occupied Paris, and as I hope to show, uh, the answer is not easy to say, but it begins in the uh, the studio of uh, Pablo Picasso. Once, during the Nazi occupation of Paris, which lasted from 1940 to 1944, a German officer made his way to the attic of seven Rue de Grand Augustin home and studio of the Spanish artist Pablo Picasso. Picking up a postcard reproduction of Guernica, Picasso's commemoration of the Basque civilians killed by the Luftwaffe in Spain in 1937, the officer asked, Did you do this? And Picasso handed the card back and replied, No, you did. And even if this story is apocryphal, It is undoubtedly true that Picasso occasionally hid fugitives from the German authorities and gave money to one or another resistance group. Throughout the war, he collected propaganda clippings that denounced him as Picasso the Jew, the decadent Pablo Picasso, the obscene pornographer, and the like. And during the liberation of Paris, it is said that the fighting became a part of his paintings amid a series of paintings depicting a tomato plant. In one picture, the sky seen out of his window becomes yellowish, that afternoon being the day that the Allies destroyed a petrol depot. And as the fighting on the street below became even more intense, and the victory of France was certain, he took to painting The Triumph of Pan. None of this would have been possible, had Picasso not remained in Paris, where by then he had been living for nearly four decades. His mistress, Francois Gillot, remarked, What would have changed if Picasso, who certainly was no good with armaments, had thrown a grenade? Nothing. No, his position was being against the Germans and staying in Paris. For people of my generation, That symbol was very important. Just by being there, and not losing our dignity, you could do certain things. Similarly, when war broke out, the guitarist Django Reinhardt had been traveling with his band in London, but he preferred Paris and returned there immediately. And as fellow artist Henri Matisse wrote to his son in New York, If everything of any worth flees, what will remain of France? Indeed, from June 1940 to August of 1944, millions of others also remained in Paris. And in reflecting on just how they did so, how they bought bread, rode the Metro, went to the theater, or just walked down the street amid a Nazi presence, the difficulty of everyday life reveals itself. On June 5, 1940, just before the exodus from the city began ahead of the advancing German army, the Paris Opera closed amid its production of Berlioz's Damnation of Faust. Almost three months later, on August 24, well after the city was declared open and the Germans allowed to enter without a fight and after millions who had fled the city had now returned, the Paris opera reopened, with the same Berlioz, but now to a French and German crowd. The ease with which this and other forms of cultural life reasserted themselves, or just how easily life went on, now with Germans everywhere, seems to have embarrassed everyone. A teenager during the war wrote in her diary, a french teenager uh, it is ignoble to become accustomed to seeing the german crosses flying over the chamber of deputies nonetheless we did become used to it the situation was ready made for the nazis who as ever were keen exploiters of human frailty and need and so in paris as elsewhere their victims were put in a position which implicated themselves in their own subjugation. And as an aside here, uh, that's one of the famous passages in uh, Primo Levi's uh, essays and memoirs of, uh, of being in Auschwitz, and what he later learned, what was also going on in Auschwitz while he was there. This is the same point that he makes about the Sonderkommando, the... Uh, The Jewish inmates of Auschwitz who helped to clean out the showers and put the bodies of other dead Jews into the ovens. um, Primo Levi considered that one of the most perverse things he had ever heard of, making the Jews themselves, these Jews in particular, implicit in the destruction of their own people. This is something that the Uh, Germans were very uh, capable of doing. With the length of the occupation in 1940 unknown, but seemingly indefinite, couldn't the people of Paris take a break and pretend some normality? As a columnist in Le Gerbe wondered why Parisians should be condemned, because we try to forget our sorrows, and their piteous burden by going to see a show. Hitler himself seems to have enjoyed their difficulties, remarking to his architect Albert Speer, does the spiritual health of the French people matter to you? Let's let them degenerate, all the better for us. While it seems regrettable that until 1942, the Germans only required 30,000 men To watch over the entirety of France, as with other aspects of everyday life that seem at first easy to judge, beneath each is a greater complexity. A recent writer lists only a few of the unanswerable questions, questions repeated every hour of every day for four years. Should a woman reject a seat offered by a German in the metro? Should one have refused to receive civilized, non-Nazi Germans whom one had known before the war into your home or your apartment. Should one have turned one's back on a German friend in a public place? And so, in those early months of the occupation, movie theaters reopened, but American and British films were banned, and only the lightest French fare was allowed to be shown or produced. The Louvre was partially reopened, But other propaganda exhibits, whether anti-Semitic or against Freemasonry or Communism, also opened in the city. And throughout the war years, these exhibits also toured the rest of the country. And on October 3, 1940, the statute against Jews was promulgated, excluding them from being teachers or working in the government, civil services, or the press. It was another two years before they were no longer allowed to appear on stage, and were required to wear the yellow star. A teacher herself, the philosopher and novelist Simone de Beauvoir, signed a paper under oath, declaring that she was neither Jewish nor a Freemason, saying, and she says in her diaries, I thought it repugnant to sign, but no one refused, for most of my colleagues, as for myself, There was no way of doing otherwise. At the same time, the Paris Soir newspaper was jubilant at the statute against the Jews, one headline running The Purification Begins, Jews at Last Expelled from All Public Jobs in the Country. As would later be asked, surely there was a large gap between teachers keeping their livelihoods rather than resigning in protest, and no doubt helping their students grapple with the situation, there was a difference between that and rags like the Paris Soir, which reflected the worst anti-Semitism the French people were capable of. Is there a difference between those two situations? Paris nightlife also didn't miss a beat. The brothels, cabarets, and music halls all performed for their unwelcome guests. But on any given night it could also be subtly undermined. Comedians were known to fill their acts, already in French, with slang and argot the Germans would never catch, even as very few spoke out against the occupation directly. Similarly, Josephine Baker performed for German audiences, just as she had for Parisians, yet a French intelligence officer posed as her secretary, so that when she traveled to Lisbon, she was able to pass sensitive information on German troop movements, written in invisible ink, on her music scores. Edith Piaf did equally ingenious work. Allowed to perform for French POWs, incarcerated outside of Berlin, she convinced the German commanders there to allow her to have a photo taken with the French prisoners or, as she called them, my soldiers. Again, with an intelligence officer posing as a secretary, those same photos were enlarged and used to create false IDs for each one of those men, which were delivered to them following another concert, so that should any of them escape, they could be identified as legal French workers in Germany. Without knowing, Any of these schemes which i assume only came to light after the war both josephine baker and edith piaf could have been slandered for dealing politely with the german authorities yet anyone who went out to lunch in paris could have been accused of the same since german bands or choirs frequently performed outside the paris opera other times parisians sunning near the luxembourg gardens could also enjoy a German brass band. As one scholar has said, none of these crowds approved of the occupation. Instead, they were drawn, quote, by the magnet of the music, end quote. In July 1941, the composer Francis Poulenc said as much, musical life is intense and everyone finds in it a way of forgetting the present sadness. So more questions here. Were those who saw concerts or sunned themselves? Or were those who went shopping or just laughed out in public, somehow giving their tacit approval to Vichy and the occupation? Did one's attachment to culture and the brief need to forget encourage or cancel out more obvious instances of capital C collaboration because there were always men like the French pianist Alfred Courtauld, who during the occupation toured France and Germany and played with German orchestras and was even congratulated for his quote, useful act of collaboration, end quote. At the same time, however, Jacques Rouchet, musical director of the Paris Opera, was forced to fire 30 Jewish musicians, even as he continued to pay them for another two years. Similarly, the Society of Authors, Composers, and Editors of Music did the same for the Jewish composers they had dismissed or the wives of those who had been deported. As with Edith Piaf and Josephine Baker, to all outward appearances, Rouchet and the Society of Authors, Composers, and Editors of Music were collaborating. They had fired Jewish employees. And so two questions come How could everyday civilians, without their influence or prominence of these entertainers or organizations, pretend to do otherwise? Or was Paris a veritable two- or three- or four-layer cake of such subterfuge, with most people knowing who was, quote, really collaborating, and and who was only doing so to achieve other ends? In a country which prided itself on its writers and thinkers, in many ways, France's authors and publishers had it worse than other mediums, and as expected, the most eloquent voice on the topic was unknown during the war years. This is someone I've quoted many times, uh, the writer Jean Gehenno, whose Diary of the Dark Years I've mentioned here before. Constantly railing against the weakness of his fellow authors officers, authors, constantly railing against the weakness of his fellow authors, and refusing himself to publish one word during the occupation since the magazines came under Nazi control and uh, could only appear in print under a Nazi censor, Jean Gehennaud said The man of letters species is not one of the greatest species in the human race. The man of letters is unable to live out of public view for any length of time. He would sell his soul to see his name appear. A few months of silence, disappearance, have pushed him to the limit. He can't stand it any more. All he quibbles about now is the size or font of the characters that will print his name or his place in the table of contents. Of course he's chock-full of edifying reasons. French literature must go on, he says. He thinks he is French literature, and French thought, and that they would die without him." Yet, elsewhere, Jean Gahanot admits that he was, quote, lucky enough not to be obliged to write for a living. And so if you weren't absolutely obliged to appear, because of the need to earn a living, the least you could do was hide, and Gehenna was able to hide and not be dependent upon publishing uh, to get by. But what indeed about those writers who had no other source of income? Like those Parisian women who slept with the Germans in return for rations or other favors for their children and families, the difficult question remains, what were they supposed to do in august of 1941 gehenno himself says of the occupation there is nothing we can do now and there will be nothing we can do for a long time to come nothing that is except staying you know, staying alive to live day to day until a better moment and how exactly should one do that gehenno is especially harsh on new writers who he sees as opportunists, rushing in to fill a void left by those with, quote, standards. Yet, what could the then-unknown Albert Camus do when his Myth of Sisyphus was published in 1944, but remove the positive mention of a Jewish writer, Franz Kafka, at the censor's command? And if his acquiescence was unfortunate, did the prominence which the book gave him, alongside his work in Paris, in the Paris Theater during the occupation, his editing of the underground newspaper Combat, and his post-war role as the voice for morality and conscience, does all this justify this form of, collaboration? The journalist and novelist Colette, who wrote her most famous work, Gigi, during the war years, also contributed to collaborationist and even pro-German newspapers all while hiding her Jewish husband in their Palais Royal apartment was this simply necessary what Jean Gehenna would not allow his fellow writers nevertheless became a gold mine when he observes the small gestures of everyday Parisians and this is what he says faces in the metro were morose but could we know what was what that seamstress was carrying in her handbag between her lipstick and her compact. That ordinary-looking package a young student had set down on the floor next to her was a radio transmitter, lists of airdrops, mail from London, or weapons. Elsewhere, Gehenna observes with pride the blind man outside the metro playing the Marseillaise on his accordion, and Gehenna remarks that everyone who passes, quote, thinks he is being revenged by this blind man end quote since the Germans because of the blind man's infirmity refuse to make him stop another time he has his own moment of triumph in this encounter with a German soldier who Gehenno only addresses honestly back home in his diary and this is a fun thing Uh, you have these 20 year old German soldiers who've never been to Paris before And they wander around asking uh, Parisians directions to famous places. So Gehenno uh, was approached by one of these men, and this is what he says in his diary. You were wandering around like any lost little soldier, looking for Notre Dame Cathedral. So I condescended to understand you, and with a gesture, without saying a word, I pointed to the towers rising in the sky on the other side of the river, staring you in the face. You felt stupid, you blushed, and I was glad. It has come to this. He also records a similar encounter with another lost soldier whose French guide gives up with the words, Poor guy, man, you are dumb. What the hell are you doing here? It's too complicated for you. And yet, after smiling over stories like these, The dumb soldier remained, and the French remembered that he was there because they had surrendered. It becomes both empowering but then slightly pathetic to find pride in a fellow Frenchman refusing a cigarette when it is offered by a German. At times, this was the best they could do. At others, Gehenno brings every caustic remark back on himself, saying, The worst is that we manage to live in it. Toward the end of a meager meal, we turn the dial on the radio. We calmly listen to them say that 55 hostages were shot in Lille, two divisions were exterminated in Russia, Malta has just undergone its 2,000th bombing, etc. Then we savor that drop of wine we had been saving for the end of the dinner. We keep it in our mouths for a long time, dreaming of wine, cellars, and barrels. Finally we make up our minds to swallow it. I am ashamed of this monstrous apathy. Have I forgotten? I know, however, I saw men die. Could I no longer feel anything of that immense pity I was filled with at the age of twenty-five? Have these past twenty-five years worn away all of our humanity?" And the past 25 years, I believe, refers to the the end of the First World War, up to the present moment in the Second. This feeling both of weakness and guilt, powerlessness coupled with self-laceration, went on for four years. Should anyone feel so bad as to join the resistance groups that began cropping up, the fate of those who were caught was never far away. In early december nineteen forty three Gehenno described an evening walking on the Boulevard Saint Michel when suddenly he heard the Marseillaise being sung. Quote, it was prisoners being taken in police wagons to Fresnes or Sante. A few people on the sidewalk barely stopped to watch them go by. It's true that night was all it's true that the night was already protecting us but the black uniformed police were watching. I hope the people were at least clenching their fists in their pockets. One of the resistance resistance members who was on the inside of another of these convoys later wrote, quote, What a contrast. As we were going towards our deaths, thousands of people were enjoying the August sunshine and sitting idly at sidewalk cafes. A few noticed us, and I remember seeing, through the slats in the side of the truck, some horror-stricken Parisians watching our convoy pass. A few women were weeping." Even the most strident forms of waiting it out or patient subterfuge must have crumbled at scenes like these. The fate of women and children during the occupation are among the most difficult to recount. Many French children were overawed by the uniformed Germans, who made it easy by giving out looted chocolate to them. With evidence of their country's capitulation all around them, and surrounded by German propaganda posters, one of which declared, Abandoned Population! Put Your Trust in German Soldiers! how could these children not as one frenchman remembered from his childhood quote, "what adolescent of my generation did not dream even if only briefly and shamefully of being a young 20-year-old ss soldier leaning on his tank spreading butter on his bread with his dagger" End quote. almost immediately after returning to paris after the exodus Simone de Beauvoir overheard a Frenchman speak openly, even with a grin, about French women sleeping with German soldiers, and how now there were some little Germans in the works. And she says, I heard this sentence ten times, and never did it carry any blame. Although, around the same time, a fifteen-year-old named Flora Groult referred to French women flirting with Germans as, quote, "'Bitches in heat.'" With so many husbands, fathers, and older sons imprisoned in Germany, it should come as no surprise that an estimated eighty to 200,000 babies were born during the occupation from French mothers and German fathers. These, these, quote, "'Accursed children, enfants maudits.'" They were shamed on all sides, since the Wehrmacht forbade such relationships, just as much as the French eventually came to. Whorehouses were one thing, and perhaps many Germans knew some of them were just fronts for spies looking for information. But it isn't so unlikely that men and women on both sides, amid a daily life everyone became inured to, and during which only certain groups were singled out for punishment, it isn't such a surprise that relationships might spring up. One German officer, Gerhard Heller, fondly recalled liaisons with a French teenage girl, and later with a teenage boy. With the girl, there were bicycle rides to the country and walked through the city, while his later time with the boy was understandably more covert. That both the German officer and the teenage boy were willing to risk a homosexual affair speaks to the loneliness many must have felt on both sides during the occupation. After a while, many forms of what might be called civil disobedience began to appear. The metro and the sewers, and no doubt Paris's famous catacombs, became places to hide and retreat, or have a bit of fun away from the German authorities, who seemed to have mapped out everything above ground, but never got their bearings beneath it. The French also came to the defense of their Jewish neighbors when the latter were forced to wear the yellow star. The young made their own stars with the words swing, "Goy," or I-N-R-I. This while, when a Nazi refused to ride in the first-class metro train until a Jewish woman vacated it, he was left alone in the car when everyone else followed her out as well. And there must have been thousands of such small gestures. But by the end of the occupation, it wasn't enough to assuage the guilt Paris seemed to feel as a whole for what had gone on. A month before Paris was liberated, a German soldier, Walter Dresner, wrote, Paris is increasingly becoming a trap for the Germans. But for months after, and perhaps even now, it remained a trap for the French as well. The so-called unofficial purge saw some 10,000 Frenchmen die as old scores were settled in the general melee, as political enemies were murdered and thrown in the Seine, and while women who had slept with Germans were publicly humiliated, tarred with swastikas and their heads shaved, and led down the street to meet further abuse. This is all after the liberation, or in the melee as the liberation is happening. No such punishment seems to have been meted out to men who slept with German women stationed in Paris. No surprise there. Perhaps some 20,000 women were punished in this way, although one's fate as a woman also depended, as ever, upon her means. The American socialite Florence Gould whose aging French husband spent the war years in the South, held a famous weekly salon at her apartment that was frequented by dozens of people, French and German. During the war years, she had a handful of lovers, some German, but after the war, she also had the money and the influence to evade punishment. The French actress Arletti, who was unapologic, unapologetic if not proud, of having had a German lover, defended herself with the memorable statement, My heart is French, but my ass is international. And while she was briefly imprisoned after the war, she quickly resumed her acting career, and following her death in 1992, she was condemned less for having a German lover than, quote, dining at the Ritz while the rest of France was going hungry. If only other... Every day, French women had been treated the same. The more official purge ended with the trials and punishments, and sometimes executions, of more notable public French figures, beginning with Vichy officials, but eventually sweeping writers and cultural figures into the mix. Of the entire affair, Jean Galatier Boissier said, the Nazis have left us an imprint of authoritarianism and persecution end quote. rather than going too far. The authorities rather seemed to have realized that such investigations would be endless, and they discovered what most French citizens had known for years, barring insight into another soul or conscience or just of their every move since June of nineteen forty there were no calculations which could definitively categorize one form of collaboration as understandable and another as criminal and even if there were punishing all of those determined punishing all of those who deserved it would only hinder the country's attempt to emerge from the war in some form of some healing as Galtier Boissier put it, quote, one forgets that some of the collaborationist writers had only their pen with which to feed their family and wrote only anodyne pieces. But does one reproach the workers of, at the Renault factory for making tanks for the Wehrmacht? Wasn't a tank more useful to the Fritz than an item in a newspaper? End quote. Indeed, for French industrial life to begin its post-war existence, factory managers and workers, who had been employed by the Germans, could not be punished. And in the same way, many police officials, magistrates, and civil servants, who had all served either Germany or Vichy, were all needed on the streets, and in the courtrooms, and in the offices, if life were to return to, quote, "...normal." This is one of my favorite stories here. When Baron de Rothschild returned to his Paris mansion after the war and asked who had come to visit the Germans living there while he had been imprisoned, the unsettling answer was, the same ones who came when you were here. Normal life would have to go on with the knowledge that it was likely compromised. But wasn't life always compromised to some degree or another. Jean Gehennau justified what happened the only way that he could by saying, defeat can prove to be the only way to resurrection, despite its ugliness. End quote. A pacifist following the apparently senseless and total slaughter of World War I, it took the occupation to change Jean Gehennau's mind, if only slightly, in words that appear in his diary only a few days after the Germans marched into Paris and he says I will never believe that men are made for war but I know they are not made for servitude either and for me anyway that is about as good uh, an answer to pacifism as I know Um, you don't have to be uh punching your chest and uh, chanting in the street uh, and happy about war, but sometimes it is better than the alternative. It just is. Four years of day-in, day-out interactions with the occupying Germans had tested everyone's belief in their own dignity, and it was hard not to feel that sometimes servitude is where they had ended up in the same way, after a time, for Albert, even Albert Camus refused to support the purge on French citizens, writing, quote, The greatness of man lies in his decision to be stronger than his condition. I'll repeat that. The greatness of man, the greatness of humanity, lies in our decision to be stronger than our condition, stronger than our need and our desire for uh, punishment and revenge. Camus seemed to understand that even this greatness seemed to understand that even this greatness was occasional. I'm not sure what that sentence says. I have no idea. Uh, Let's skip to the next sentence. I could use a a good edit on, uh, on this one, I think. Uh, That they worried over gestures and interactions small and large and that they still had a conscience which nagged them at all was actually quite encouraging because because that meant they hadn't become like their enemies after all. Perfect worlds and pure races, ideal conditions and clear lines leave those to the authoritarians who thought them possible. Simone de Beauvoir described post war life as Paris in the year zero. They could begin again, but no one had the luxury of believing that it would be easy. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us